When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to your book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. Regular listeners might have heard me mention that I have a book coming out soon. My very first novel, Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls, is published by Sphere on the 11th of February. Stuck in a dead-end job, broken-hearted, broke and estranged from her best friend, Violet's life is nothing like she thought it would be. She wants more. Better friends, better sex and a better job. And she wants it now. So when Lottie, who looks like the woman Violet wants to be when she grows up, offers Violet the chance to join her exciting startup, she bites. Only it soon becomes clear that Lottie and her husband Simon are not only inviting Violet into their company, they are also inviting her into their lives. Insatiable is a Grazia, Stylist, Cosmo, Eye Paper, Red and Independent Book of the Year for 2021. I promise that I've done my absolute best to make you laugh, warm you up and write something that feels fun, sexy and hopeful because that's what I need as a reader. At the time of recording, bookshops aren't open as usual, but fear not, the digital doors are open for browsing. And I've been beavering away at home with a Sharpie so you can pre-order a signed copy of Insatiable online from Waterstones, Foils, Blackwells or the Seven Oaks Bookshop with more indies to come. I know that lots of you have already ordered a copy. Thank you so much. I love you. It really is the very best way to support the podcast. And I hope I can say that in person soon over a plastic tumbler of warm white wine and a cheese straw. Now, on to today's guest. Raven Leilani's debut novel, Luster, won the 2020 Kirkus Prize for Fiction and was selected by Barack Obama as one of his books of the year. It's the story of Edie a young black woman struggling to gain a foothold in the publishing industry, and what happens when she meets Eric, older, white, and in an open marriage of sorts, and some of Eric's secrets are more surprising than others. I was lucky enough to read A Proof of Luster a few months ago, and it dazzled me. It was so sharply, darkly funny, so vulnerable and revealing, and most of all, observed and written so beautifully that it really shocked me. Raven talked about poetry, fandom, secret reading and sexy vampires. I hope you enjoy our conversation. One of the things I loved so much about Luster and ED especially is that it is such a, you know, an exploration of and a celebration of being a fan. And I was wondering if any writers really make you feel that fandom that comes up 
in the novel. Absolutely. Um, I I really have I really love Zadie Smith. You know, I really love um, Susan Choi, Morgan Parker, um, Nabokov, uh, Jennifer Egan, Suzanne Moore, uh, Toni Morrison. Like it, really, the list um, goes on. <laughs> that is a magnificent list. Um, have you had a chance to read Patricia Lockwood's novel that's coming? I haven't. She writes really, you know, well and startlingly well about Nabokov. It's poetic and it's quite disturbing yes. and disarming and it really sort of does what he does, where you feel dismantled and then put back together again. I love that, dismantled and put back together again. Like, I really, I think that that is like a, a kind of a beautiful way to describe his writing because I think that his writing is so kind of hyper and even like perversely attuned to the details that like it's kind of a it's a decomposition that is happening or deconstruction that is happening on the page that I I feel like as I'm writing um I occasionally try to mimic right to kind of to have those components to establish the components and then to kind of draw them together again I think is a really beautiful thing. And it's such a powerful feeling to evoke in a reader. And I like to think that that's a, a gift he's given all of us, you know, that we want, we know how intense that feels. And I, you know, I think you absolutely make it your own. Um, are there any particular Nabokov novels that you, you love? I mean, I don't think that it'll be a surprise. I really, really love Lolita and I really love Penin. Um, so I think, you know, the first time I encountered Lolita, it was, I think, when we most, when most people encounter it, it was in school, um, probably in high school. And I picked up the book, I think, on my own and uh, kind of started reading it. And it has such, uh, such attention to, like, those sensory details. Like, it does feel, in that way, it does feel poetic. You know, there's a real sense of, uh, I would say, you know, it's weird to say economy because the writing is so abundant, but at the same time, there's the writing is doing so much all the time to kind of establish the texture of the environment. Um, and that for me was really exciting. That it was same with poetry, I think. That was around the time I started um, reading poetry, you know, that the feeling, the kind of beautiful feeling of coming to the page. And feeling like the writer has conjured up that reality in a way where you can almost touch it or feel it. Is poetry something that you felt that you were discovering for yourself around that time as well? 100%. Um, and I think, <laughs> I think it's, I, I laugh because I feel like the response I had to it um, as a teenager was uh, kind of, <laughs> was kind of it's kind of an unsexy thing where I felt extremely moved by the form of poetry you know I, I the very first poem I was ever obsessed with was do not go gentle into that good night by Dylan Thomas and there's one one part of it was you know it's the villanelle um so it's kind of it's base it's on repetition um and I think that that too is one of the most satisfying feelings uh, of a, when you come to a piece of writing and you have that aha moment because you've encountered the thought earlier and find that kind of circularity. You know, it feels like, I don't know, it feels like you have this inside baseball. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for me, it was, it was that. It was the, the form of Villanelle. It was 
D Dylan Thomas, um, it was that kind of that amazing feeling of repetition, um, but also rhythm, you know, the music, the music of the form. Um, and so that too, I think, really moved me. I also think pretty close to that time encountered Allen Ginsberg for the first time, uh, Howl, like that for a different reason. Like I, I loved the Villanelle for the form and for its metric and for like the, the kind of math of it, <laughs> um, the order of it. But with Howl, it really is like it, there's a kind of chaos to that. It kind of builds and it builds and builds to this beautiful climax. Um, and for a number of years, I was really chasing that, that feeling in my own writing. What an astonishing pairing and in the same world you know they are technically the same thing and they couldn't be more more different oh, it must have been just thrilling it was you know and I will say like while I, while I was in school <laughs> while I was in school that was what I did uh, rather than take notes you know I had really good teachers who saw I was doing something <laughs> that I was excited about and they let me do my thing I was in the back of the class and I was um, often kind of working on what at the time felt like it was going to be an epic poem and I'm sure I I would be embarrassed to see what to revisit that poetry now um but it, I felt really on fire with it you know I, I desperately wanted to replicate on the page um that feeling that I felt encountering that poetry are you writing poetry still as well as prose not so much anymore but poetry was the way that I I started out like that was the very first thing I ever got published, which was important to me because that first time it is like a, a moment where you realize, um, well, maybe I can do this, you know? Um, so the, that was what I first started writing um, was poetry. And it, it often wasn't, you know, the kind of more form centric poetry. It was very, it was more free verse. Um, writing poetry in sort of in the beginning of my writing career, I think it, it oriented me toward language in a way that uh, I think is still with me. You know, I, I there's so much, I mean, depending on the poem, you only have so much space, right? So I think that you both want to get that, um, get those sensory details down, get that imagery down and established to make it a thing that can be felt and seen in, in so little space that you become kind of attuned to this idea that every bit should be doing something. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I poetry was really important to me um, early on. And it was the first thing that uh, I ever felt validated and affirmed about. Um, and I would say, uh, writing this book, one of the poetry books that I, I look to a lot, you know, to kind of give me fuel was Morgan Parker's There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce. That entire poetry book um, uh, collection is really, really gorgeous. You mentioned so many amazing writers at the beginning. Um, and I love Zadie Smith and her book, Intimations, has really helped me through a difficult year. Her first books were really um, kind of formative in that, you know, I, I read them and I felt so immersed in, in the world that she built. You see a world that is so realized with a cast of characters that are so kind of um, human and idiosyncratic that you yourself want to build a world of your own. And that in that way, you know, her, some of her early books are, were really important to me. I always hope 
I imagine that, you know, there's a kind of Zadie Smith, like multiverse and all of these vivid sort of these characters who are, you know, everyone's so, so well drawn, even if they're not lingering yes. in the novel for long. You really hope there's going to be another book that stars them somewhere down the line. Yes, you know, I actually think that that is, um, that's always the mark of a, a really beautiful book when you when after that last page is turned, you're still thinking about the interior lives of these characters and, and hoping things are going well for them, you know? Um, so yeah, absolutely. Were there any books that you had to kind of read in secret or stories that you discovered oh knowing gosh. they were, you couldn't <laughs> be shared? Absolutely. Uh, oh boy. I mean, the books that I had to read in secret were those early um I think the first books where there's any real sex. And for me, those books were like vampire lit. It, it wasn't like the kind of vampire lit that I think was was more popular when I was like already um, like kind of well into my 20s. It was more like your Anne Rice, you're like Laurel K. Hamilton, you know, uh, books where uh, on, the, on a surface level are kind of fantasy, you know, about... <laughs> you know, straight vampire lit that your parents kind of have no idea what you're reading and, or what you're reading for. But in a way, those were the first books that uh, where I encountered that kind of sensual element. And in that case, you know, it was vampires. So it, it was a very specific kind of um, sensuality. <laughs> Uh, so, but it was really exciting. It was really exciting for me as like a, a young reader to come across that. And I think that was probably the, the beginning of um, my sensibility around that. So I'm really interested in this. I think there's, it's fascinating. And I think that the way it's so interesting that anything that's, you know, has erotic content and is for women, they're like, well, we need a framing device that we can't just give it to you. There's got to be vampires. Well, definitely. <laughs> I, I'm not, I don't think that's true anymore, but I think there was a point when that absolutely was true. That did you pick up interview with a vampire knowing there was going to be something exciting and other about it? Or were you like, hey, I like books. I like vampires. Oh, what's this? <laughs> you know, no, I didn't know. I really didn't know. It was like I, I was a kid who I read all of the vampire lit of my time. You know, like it was uh, at the time it was like Darren Chan. It was Anne Rice. It was Laurel K. Hamilton. I'm sure I'm missing a bunch. Um, but uh, I really, yeah, I just picked it up because I was Oh, I am legend, sort of. I, I think it's kind of not. I'm, it's not entirely. I I don't know if it, the kind of creatures are defined like overtly, but um, no, yeah. I just it was what I enjoyed reading, and in in my house, uh, my mom she had this thing where I had to read an hour a day, and we started off with books that I you know, I just wasn't really able to engage with. And so I kind of, she gave me the kind of choice to go out and find my own books, you know, something that I would enjoy reading for an hour a day. And eventually it became, um, you know, it became a thing I loved to do. Uh, so yeah, initially picking up those books, it was, I know I like this. And then it was the discovery of, oh, this is much more, um, like this is much more adult you know this is much more um kind of sensual than than I expected um but I like it and I'm excited by it I love that it began with you you know being even in that very sort of strict 
confine, being given room to discover your own worlds. Why do you think reading for an hour a day was so important to her? I think it's a wonderful habit and a gift. Oh, to my mom? Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> honestly, the first thing that comes to my mind is that she wanted me to be still for at least an hour a day. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, I, but I also think that um, she was very much of the philosophy that there is no real reason to be bored. You know, there's, there's never a reason to, to be bored. And so I think she oriented me um, to kind of start building my own internal worlds to kind of, uh, I think she wanted to enrich that, um, you know, my imagination so that I was better kind of equipped, um, <laughs> well, to equip to be still, but also to kind of make my own stimulation. And that turned out, it turned out where I, I began to love reading, but also began to want to create my own worlds, you know, and in, as a way, like, I think those first stories that I wrote, um, it wasn't, it, it almost wasn't because I, I particularly liked writing in the beginning. It was, this was a way to entertain myself. You know, it really began as a way to kind of, uh, yeah, to kind of feel stimulated and excited. Uh, and so it kind of reading books for an hour a day both gave me the fuel um, to kind of have, I think, a, a more rich interior world, but it also gave me the fuel to um, to try my hand at writing and to see if I could also create that feeling that I was encountering on the page. And I really love that in Luster and the way the notion of I don't know if it's called like fan fiction, but the idea that, you know, if you love yes. something and that gives the people who love it, so the people who do love things in that realm, you know, everyone wants to be involved. And it's from making costumes to making your own stories, not just being in the universe, but participating in it. Were there any stories that you wrote that were sort of, you know, set in the, the same universe as books you were reading? And I was also curious... <laughs> Yes. You, whether you um, reading graphic novels is something that you, you know, did as a child or do as an adult. Absolutely. Um, yes, I, I, I wrote fan fiction for sure. Um, I The very first um, way I learned how to interact with anything was sort of through the things I loved as a fan. Um, my brother was a, uh, you know, he was an artist. And so I kind of inherited all of his comic books. And he um, kind of, yeah, he supplied me with um, a lot of material, a lot of things to love. And so the way that I started writing was kind of using those those characters that I encountered to kind of express to kind of, well, one, to kind of keep the story going, as we were talking about earlier, you know, like, I think that's one reason I always feel like fan fiction is a, a kind of expression of, of love, you know, for the thing is because I think it comes from a place of not wanting the story to have ended. And as a, if you're kind of like a growing person and you're developing your sense of self and your sensibilities um, and you're trying to figure out how to write, it is, uh, I think, a uh, almost like a natural um, step in that process to use the characters that you love and know and to see that if you to see if you can actually depict them in a way that is faithful to character and kind of adheres to the rules of that world so I do think it like both is an expression of that fandom but also teaches you um, 
a kind of discipline. And uh, I think in, in some cases too, because the forums are, they're like public forums and you get you know, people coming and they review, it is the first time that you ever really get to kind of interact with pe other people who love it um, and who will interact then with your work. So for me, I, I absolutely did. I started there um, and it was deeply formative. Are there any graphic novels that you've read this year and really loved and engaged with? Oh gosh, I really, really love Saga. It is really, really beautiful. Um, I love it. Not this year. I haven't read this one this year, but I think Fun Home is just kind of a crucial text. It's both like memoir and graphic novel. Um, and so it's a graphic memoir. Um, and it is so, uh, gosh, it's so kind of honest and humane, but also just deeply real about the complexity of familial relationships. What is the book that you have given the most as a gift? I would say Cavalier and Clay by Michael Shaben. Because I think I know, I know a lot of people who both, uh, who love comics, who are artists, who are, who are, actually, who are excited or curious about the form. And that book is, uh, and it's kind of, it's kind of a tome, you know, it's, it's not a short book. Um, that book is really detailed and, uh, and specific about the art making process, about the business end of, um, of comics and the kind of reality of collaboration. You know, it's one of, it's a book where it has sort of some of my favorite depictions of, of drawing, of figure drawing. And so that's a book that I, that I have given out uh, more than once. I love uh, novels when art makes an appearance and, you know, when it's done well, because I think it's so, there are so many interesting facets to that world. And again, it's something where we've all got such a strong and such a varied emotional connection with it. And it's so hard to, to put that into words and describe it. So I can see anyone who's able to make those yes. insights, you know, that's a, that's a really powerful thing to, to be able to do. I was interested in you mentioning Fun Home it's all of those themes that I'm so excited to find there and maybe wouldn't always expect to find in the form, but it's about, you know, family and intimacy and identity. Yes. And, all, and I was thinking about how, you know, those are the themes that always come up in my favourite novels. And again, you know, we talked about Zadie Smith yes. and she was so good on them. I was that you mentioned Jennifer Egan and I was thinking about the A Visit from the Goon Squad, which I've not read in so long. Yes. But that sense of things being oh fractured and together. I love to teach that book. Um, I actually, I read that a long time ago. I will say for the first time I read it a long time ago. I still lived in, in DC and uh, it is just, it really is, I think, in terms of its its form, the kind of novel that I I really hope I can one day write, where it's like kind of a, um, you know, interconnected narrative where it has that thing we were talking about earlier about the villanelle, you know, there is this, the feeling of aha, of repetition and rhythm and having kind of encountered the, the strand of a thing in a kind of an early, earlier story and then seeing it come to fruition in, in a later piece, in a later part of the book. It's always a really kind of satisfying feeling. And that book, I think it does that flawlessly. You know, it introduces it introduces those strands in a way that is both subtle, but in a way where you, when you encounter it, 
you're waiting, you're waiting for, you know, the kind of payoff of that. But it also, you know, she writes about music uh, in a way that I'm always looking for, you know, the the texture of the thing, but also the, the kind of fervor of the culture around it. I thought was just, I don't know, I felt so, um, I felt so immersed in that universe and so uh, invested in in every kind of character's psychological drama, even though she, you know, gives us maybe like a chapter with each. Like, that's something I, I greatly admire, you know, a kind of author's ability to establish both the kind of psychological stakes and kind of formative context um, in, in very little space and to kind of connect that uh, in a way that feels seamless and organic. Um, but also, you know, she, she really plays around with, with form in a way that I thought was, was risky and that kind of makes you, gives you kind of permission yes. to be more free. Are there any like non-fiction books about music that you love, like biographies or, you know, books about bands or genres? For a long time, I have been looking for a non-fiction book that will, that is, geared toward the psychology of music and why we hear and kind of gravitate to what we gravitate to. Because I am, I really, one of the sort of missed um, opportunities I still feel um, really prickly about is I, I always wished that I had picked up an instrument and sort of understood music in a, in, in a technical way. So that's what I'd be most interested in is something that would be able to, um, in layman's terms, um, kind of explain to me the kind of logistics of making music um but any any <laughs> any band i'm interested in or any musician i generally will kind of look up who they are and how they came to what they did um, but most nonfiction that i i read uh tends to kind of be i'm reading um i like to watch is that emily newsbaum yes yes there we go um but i i really love reading about tv <laughs> Um, so those are like, in terms of like entertainment, um, those are the kind of nonfiction books that I, I, I more read. Um, so yeah. I, I really would, I long to read that book and I have not yet. Is that, um, is it essays? Is it her New Yorker reviews? Yeah, I think, I think they're mostly like the reviews that have been in the New Yorker, but maybe some of them have, have been elsewhere. Um, but they are really, really brilliant and I, I love love tv <laughs> and i also feel like my enjoyment of television is is made better when i under when i kind of think i'm able to think more critically about uh the intentional choices that are made um behind the scenes i i really I kind of really love uh both reading about and like watching kind of breakdowns around the craft choices that um, screenwriters, um, directors, producers make when making a movie or, or making television. She wrote an incredible essay, I think, both on The Sopranos and um, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I don't know if that one is in the book, but it's really, really, I just love reading smart writing about, uh, about TV that is kind of keyed into those craft choices and and why those craft choices you work or, or don't work because um, I do think that 
those principles are applicable to fiction. You know, what it looks like to to kind of write with intention or, or write in a way where you are, are, are writing generously enough to keep a reader with you. And I, I am very like, <laughs> I say that with some trepidation because I do think that it's important to write uh, without any outside voices, you know, to write freely without um, kind of letting that in, you know, what whether readers will stick with you or not. But I will say with writing Luster, you know, I wrote it with the intention to be read. And I wrote it with enormous anxiety about, am I making choices that will make a person want to turn the page? And I think those choices are, are perhaps even more important in visual mediums. So I always look to, I always look to, to those mediums and to like the criticism around those mediums for, you know, for kind of craft direction. I think it's so interesting that throughout this conversation, you've always come back to economy and beauty, that, you know, nothing must be extraneous, nothing must be gratuitous, nothing, language is so important, but it cannot be for its own sake. It's really got to do the work. Yes, And yes. it sounds like I don't want to assume anything. Um, I very much get the impression that you wrote Luster as a reader, that it's your reading oh, yeah. habit and read that made you think well what would make me want to turn the page because I think that's kind of all you can do really I don't think you can write for everyone as much as you'd yeah, like to right. so you sort of have to start by writing for you maybe but writing for you as a reader not writing for you as a writer that's right um I mean I do think that like writing for everyone is like the death of of a project you know because I don't know I feel like that would then kind of dilute any real kind of strong sense of voice or point of view um but i do uh <laughs> i do i think partly because of what we were talking about where i started writing uh in a way where i wrote um for my own entertainment I, it, it began to be a thing where i could only write if i was excited by what i was writing and um you know so i'm just one person so that's there's you know whether i like it or not almost means nothing relative to a reader he might pick it up in the wild but i do generally feel that that's something that you can feel as as a reader or as like a viewer was this person excited about the subject that they're you know depicting or were they kind of slogging along you can feel i think you can feel that and so it was really important for me to to be excited about um, about what I was doing, to feel entertained by what I was doing, and to, I don't know, to, to kind of, I mean, this is a, it's a big word, but to honor the reader in the way where the words that I'm putting on the page are in service of something, you know, whether it is like texture or style or, or stakes, you know, I, I really have like, I think, an unprecious um, idea of, of what the reader owes me. It, it, you know, in other words, I feel like <laughs> as I'm writing something, I'm, I'm always uh, in danger of losing them. So I'm kind of like, you know, I'm trying to construct it in a way where, you know, someone who doesn't love me, you know, someone who owes me nothing will still want to stick with me. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back to Raven soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, The Profits by future podcast guest Robert Jones Jr., This is the story of the love affair of two enslaved young men, Samuel and Isaiah, on a Halifax plantation, and the violence and turmoil that occurs when fellow slave Amos is compelled to preach the master's gospel and betray them. Jane's genius novel has rightly been compared with the work of Toni Morrison and Zora Neale Hurston. This story is urgent, unsettling, furious and tender. It will never leave you. The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. is published by Quercus and out now. Now, back to Raven. Of novels that you've read either recently or ever, if you could adapt something for the screen, either, you know, for TV or for a movie, I give you, like, unlimited budget, any, you know, casting you like, uh, what do you pick? I guess I have two answers. It's My Education by Susan Choi or um, The New Me by Holly Butler. So for, for different reasons. My Education... Um, is really like was truly one of my um, the texts that I returned to in writing last year because I find like the the relationship between these two women so compelling so complex so kind of drenched with unruly obsession those tend to be um, I think maybe uh, Killing Eve is actually a great example Mm. like what it looks like to have kind of a both tenuous and profound dynamic between two very different women um, is something that I'm always game to watch and tune into. Um, but that treats its its women, um, its female characters, in a way where they're allowed to be difficult, you know, where they're allowed to want the wrong things. Um, <laughs> the wrong things, you know, like even even saying that is kind of it's couched in a kind of judgment. And with the new me, I I really love that text for, uh, how it revolves around work. For me, coming to a a show or a book 
Um, granted, some, you know, some books and shows are not about work. And so that's the reason that it's not there. But to not see it present always often feels like an omission to me. The way that we kind of navigate around work in order to do the things that are meaningful to us, you know, the kind of way we feel about work, which, you know, for a lot of us is nine or, you know, nine hours out of five days of the week. Um, the sort of dynamics we have uh, with with people at work <laughs> is so rich for character. I want to see more of that. You know, I want to see more of what it looks like to be a human, to be a kind of uh, a person who wants and who yearns and who's angry, what that looks like against the performance of of work or who you have to be, the avatar you have to project in those kind of professional spaces, I think is really interesting. Yeah, I think I would like to see that on screen. And I think maybe that is, um, people tend not to want to, <laughs> to watch things about work while they're at home watching TV, but that is really compelling to me and worthwhile. And it will floored me with luster and will absolutely kind of knocked the breath from my lungs immediately was Edie, you know, in this job and being overlooked and underused and underappreciated and being so full of yearning and this kind of this latent talent that she wasn't getting room to use, but also that she was making less than ideal choices because she was bored and they were kind of long-term bad but short-term good or that you know she was just trying to kind of endure it all and get through the day and that utter ache of being in your 20s like I don't want to tell you what your book is about please like jump in and correct me no please do <laughs> the giddiness that Edie is kind of initially drunk on being seen living in an awful apartment that you can't really afford and you're always wet and feeling yes. like the circumstances of your life are being dictated and you can't you know your basic needs aren't being met before your talent is seen and acknowledged. That was important to me. And I mean, I think that that, that kind of is, is apparent because you have a window into her mind. You know, I think that if you only kind of were privy to her external reality, it would be an entirely different story. But there is this, there is this friction between what the kind of performance that is required of her and, and which she indulges and the, <laughs> her fury and her yearning at, at what she has to sublimate, at, at the kind of capability that she um, is kind of called to question and dampen. Um, so I, I mean, I do think that, that duality is reality for um, a lot of Black women. Yeah, that was important to me to depict, you know, not, not even just the kind of uh, the dissonance uh, of that of the performance and of her kind of interior reality um, but the reality of of trying to make work that is meaningful to you while you were trying to survive <laughs> you know while you were while you were while your bandwidth is kind of spent um, trying to navigate both the like literal um, kind of physical demand but also like the psychic expense of that when I wrote it and it's it's nice to hear that you say that she's lovable um be, you know partly because I think um there is like a shorthand uh, of talking about um, women who are allowed to feel <laughs> as <laughs> as unlikable which I think is very telling 
but in writing this, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't thinking at all about, about like lovability or likability. I really, because that almost felt, that almost felt secondary to telling the story about uh, a human experience um, that is, that encompasses all of the tr contradictions that I think being human does. And so she, there are moments in which she is angry. There are moments in which she is wrong. You know, there are moments in which she is aching and, and wanting and excited. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to make space for all of those, all of those things. Do you have any, in novels in general, favourite anti-heroines or fictional women you know you have loved or or liked in spite of their apparent unlikability um otessa otessa moshfegs a lot of her kind of books um have really complicated heroines that i that i'm really gravitate toward i really love a oh, queenie oh! <laughs> i mean that's an easy name to remember as well because it's literally the name of the book when you're talking about um, workplace and i was like there's this british book i love i don't know if you come across it yes um, and coming across that book felt especially refreshing because it was, you know, it was a black woman who was allowed to be, um, to, to flail, to be sexual, um, to be dissatisfied. And, and there is like, there's a kind of, I mean, the book is just, it's, it's extremely funny. So you have that balance between the wanting and the yearning and like the kind of, uh, <laughs> hyperbole of the environment and the kind of private almost resigned wry voice <laughs> kind of up against that when I encountered that I felt really um alive <laughs> so uh, you know Queenie the protagonist of, of my education who is just I mean really all of these women the one thing they, they all have in common is that they they live uh, they either yearn deeply, you know, they are not sort of these disaffected uh, young women who kind of, um, in some cases maybe, but there is a real earnest core to these characters. Um, there is a, uh, a dedication on the page to their psychology that allows them to be um, to be unruly, um, and in some cases they live entirely without apology, which is you know perhaps actually an antisocial way to live, <laughs> but is aspirational in a way um, when you're a woman uh, and you are you know have been conditioned to kind of contain yourself. Um, I think coming to those texts both gives me as a writer permission to be free and to be unruly on the page, but also as a human person, it creates a possibility that there is another way to exist in the world that is unfettered, that is unfettered. I'm really glad you mentioned Atessa Mushfeh because I've only read um, my year of rest and relaxation. I want to read the new one desperately and I've not read Eileen and I must read Eileen first. And I don't know that her, that protagonist has a name, does she? I know- um... In my year of rest? No, she's unnamed. Yeah, <laughs> I remember Doctor Tuttle, and um, oh, yes. I can't remember her. But but that what I loved so much about that book because I think when I sort of first heard the premise, I felt very like that's allowed. You're allowed to write a novel yes. about that. I would have done that if I'd have known. That's but right. I always think of April Ludgate in Parks and Rec saying, 
I don't want oh, to do wow. things. I want to yes. not do things. Yes. <laughs> I remember in, um, I don't know if you read Gia Tolentino's book and her essay about optimization in um, Trick Mirror. Yes, always be optimizing. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. Incredible. And so you've got this heroine who's just checked out. And she is really, really privileged, but she sort of owns it. And that being like the ultimate sort of fantasy of subversive womanhood, like you don't have to keep showing up and performing and creating things and justifying your perfect presence in the world. You can just be asleep for a year. Yes, yes. And, you know, honestly, I think that that book is kind of a miracle. Like I actually... I couldn't, I don't know how you actually pull that off on the page, but she did because technically it's predicated on stasis, which you think is, would be like the enemy to a kind of traditional um, kind of narrative shape. But it is so, it is so compelling because of that refusal. Um, and, and that essay that you mentioned by Gia Tolentino is, I mean, it, 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 I could tell it hit you and like it hit me because it, it is that, um, it's a real meditation on on the ways we're not allowed to refuse, <laughs> right? Or not meant to refuse or to opt out. But but that essay specifically, it, it draws together this kind of compulsive, uh, constant self-reinvention and performance that I think is is deeply is deeply dehumanizing ultimately, right? It is sort of like you become a machine. There, there's an element of, of that, of living like that, of, of opting in and sort of, which, which we all do, right? And deferring to that mandate for, for containment, right? Because that always be optimizing is, is very much a kind of philosophy that is an, against the idea of an unruly woman. And I think that those texts that allow for women to be, to be unfettered, uh, that allow for women to, uh, to refuse to participate, as I think Edie does, um, those are, those are freeing texts. And, and I don't mean to say that, uh, you know, in judgment of, of women who do opt in, because I do think that, um, <laughs> from the day that we are born, right, we are socialized and conditioned to adhere to those extremely severe mandates of containment and that it takes a lot of really intentional undoing to even feel you have the right to opt out. Uh, and so that's part of the reason why I gravitate toward <laughs> the the kind of quote-unquote unlikable woman. It, I think it's really interesting now, anyone who's creating any kind of art, the only way to create the art is to climb outside and look but then there's something so weird about the way we're called upon to perform the role of writer or the role of author. And maybe it's especially for women and the sort of the way that one must market a book and all of the sort of the social media stuff. And it's really, really difficult to, you know, it's to, a competing duality, I guess. Have I made any sense or am I just talking nonsense? Oh, no, no, you, you've made perfect sense. I, I mean, I really think that um, even when it comes to to talking about the art making process, there's this really pristine idea of of what it looks like to be generative. And I think 
because the art making process is so much about failure <laughs> or involves so much failure, it, it is kind of like a collection of private moments in which you try to figure out a way to jump that hurdle where you feel totally unmoored and, and lost in your, both in your capability and in what you're making. And those aren't the things that are visible. And, and often those aren't the things that <laughs> we want to be visible or that even the people want to see. To kind of look directly at the, at the real kind of brutal mechanism of, of art making is uncomfortable. I mean, it, in it, and it, it's uncomfortable partly because there's an enormous disparity in who is allowed access to, to their art. Um, and, and it's uncomfortable because I think it is really seductive um, to kind of think of art as a, a linear trajectory. But in most cases, um, and in my case at least, it, it, really, it really wasn't that. Most of the work was, was solitary and, and private and unseen. Uh, a lot of the work was, <laughs> a lot of the work was rejection and kind of what I did with that rejection. In some cases, I did nothing with it. Some, some days I allowed myself to be crushed by that because I do think that the emotional reality of that is, um, is really deeply um, jagged and it is not as simple as you know and then she surmounted this obstacle and and everything worked out you know it really is like you take a couple steps forward and you take many more steps back and so it isn't that trajectory is it's a kind of complex thing to depict honestly and in this book so I was hoping to do that to kind of that I hoped it would be liberating to be uh, to be candid about <laughs> to be candid about how much failure is involved in the process, um, how much self doubt, um, and and how many kind of impediments are there for reasons that are are beyond many of our, you know our control. And you're right, there is this idea, this performance of of what it means to to be making things, and I, I often think that <laughs> the reality of that is is very different um, and less sexy. So more than anything, I think what I felt freed by is is being able to kind of lower the veil and see the way that it can be strange, the way that it can be lonely, you know, the way that it... Um, and I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't talk about, the loneliness of that, of how single-minded you have to be in order to kind of see a thing through. Um, and the, the fact that you can't almost have to be willing to feel that, you know, so the, the loneliness of it, you know, the messiness of it, um, and, the, and the failure. And I, that sounds extremely grim, but to me, it wasn't grim. To me, it was, whew, you know, I'm, I'm not doing it wrong. Are there any books that we've not mentioned that you were hoping to talk about? Sure. Um, I, I mean, there are just a lot of great books coming out or that did come out like right when the pandemic was happening that I really, you know, want to spotlight. Um, so I, I really love um, These Ghosts Are Family by Maisie Card. I love Lakewood by Megan Gidding. I really love The Lightness by Emily Temple. True Love by Sarah Gerard. Days of Distraction by Alexandra Chang. Um, and a couple new books that are coming out. 
um, Call a Baby by Morgan Jerkins. Uh, I'm really, really excited about. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I think that's a that's a handful of books that I am really glad that are in the world. Um, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. I'm really excited to um, have a reading list. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about that that last one? Do you say it's called Call Baby? Call Baby. Um, I actually don't know how much I can talk about it because it, it's like a I read an arc, um, but it is it is a beautiful kind of meditation on Black motherhood and legacy, um, and it also has like it doesn't shy away from a kind of magic of the thing. Is that that's sort of a um, <laughs> A little teaser but um morgan is just a wonderful person and writer and i think this is her first she's mostly written nonfiction. this is her first foray into um into fiction i'm really excited for it awesome well, i've got to say the further i get into my 30s the more i'm into the woo i've also i've written something in um in uk grazia about sexy books coming back in 2021 incredible um, my first novel is coming out and it's explicit content and sort of touches on quite a lot of the themes we talked about like ambition and yearning and uh, to be honest I read Luster and I was like I'm going to give up writing forever stop (laughs) but it is not because it's about um a woman in her 20s and she's having an awful time at work and she sort of takes up this very glamorous couple who are offering her all sorts of things and I was like oh it's spooky how because obviously it was, you know, finished and in the works long before. But did you read Big Magic? What Elizabeth no. Gilbert says about how I think she... I've just read A State of Wonder by Anne Patchett. And Elizabeth Gilbert had that specific idea for a novel and tried to write it and it just wasn't happening and gave it up. And Anne Patchett oh, wow. had the idea, even though Elizabeth Gilbert had had no communication with her about it. Yeah. The similarities were just a bit too specific and a bit weird. But she was saying, like, in the scientific community, that happens all the time. Oh, yes. I mean, I used to work in in scientific publishing. And that was like, that is like it. That's what's really driving the engine is like, I don't want to be scooped, you know. But I think that especially with writing, you know, there are there are themes that are like, I think, inexhaustible because there's so much material there. Um, and and you almost can't help you especially can't help when your book is released and into what climate. So I think it is, it feels like just a kind of normal thing to kind of see a a kind of handful of books that are both like really kind of plugged in to similar themes come out around the same time. But I, there's like, I can never get enough of it. (laughs) So it's a good thing. Huge thanks to Raven. Luster is published by Picador and it's out now. I promise it's unlike anything you've ever read and I hope it dazzles you as much as it dazzled me. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at YBooked and if you've enjoyed this episode, it would make my day if you left us a five-star review. It helps new listeners to find the podcast. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Raven on acast.com slash booked. Finally, I leave you with this from Fran Leibovitz. I prefer dead writers because you don't run into them at parties. See you next time. Thank you. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.